0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. Light for the darkness. For the darkness. So, if you think about darkness, you might think of, like, I have experience in the darkness with, with being in the uh, in a couple caves. Again, you know how that's just completely dark. Can't see a thing. Okay. Hand in front of your face. Nothing there. Can't see it. But that's not what we're talking about, where, where this light for the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and... to meeting them in the darkness. That's not a physical darkness. That's instead a spiritual darkness, and we should talk about that. I believe there's a lot of different ways that we can talk about the spiritual darkness. One of them I want to give you is from the book called Counterfeit Gods. And it goes like this. Sin in our hearts affects our basic motivational drives, so they become idolatrous, deep idols. Some people are strongly motivated by a desire for influence and power, while others are more excited by approval and appreciation. Some want emotional and physical comfort more than anything else, while still others want security, the control of their environment. People with a deep idol of power do not mind being unpopular in order to gain influence. People who are most motivated by approval are the opposite they'll gladly lose power and control as long as everyone thinks well of them. Each deep idol, power, approval, comfort, or control, generates a different set of fears and a different set of hopes. Surface idols, so those are deep idols. Approval, control, power, those are the deep ones. Then he goes on. Surface idols are those such as money, our our spouse, or children, through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. We are often superficial in the analysis of our idol structures. For example, money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more foundational impulses. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life. Some people usually don't spend much money and live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested so they can feel completely secure in the world. Others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful and attractive. These people do spend their money on themselves in lavish ways. Other people want money because it gives them so much power over others. In every case, money functions as an idol, and yet, because of various deep idols, it results in very different patterns of behavior. So far, so good. Okay, so we've got deep idols that drive us to do what we do, and we all might be driven to a similar surface idols, but it's those deep idols that drive us, and it looks differently. Now, I'm going to have another little story here I want to read to you. and I want you to think through if you would have responded like the man did. Okay, so listen to this story. The person using money to serve a deep idol of control will often feel superior to people using money to attain power or social approval. In every case, however, money idolatry enslaves and distorts lives. Another pastor at my church, this is Tim Keller in in New York, once counseled a married couple who had severe conflicts over how they handled money. Couples never have this struggle, right? You never have struggles within your marriage about how to handle money. Maybe that would be wrong. The wife considered the husband a miser. One day, the pastor was speaking one to one, or one on one, to the husband who was complaining bitterly about his wife, who was a spendthrift. She is so selfish, spending so much on clothes and appearance. He saw clearly how her need to look attractive to others influenced her use of money. The pastor then introduced him to the concept of surface and deep idols. Do you see that by not spending or giving away anything, by socking away every penny, you are being just as selfish? You are spending absolutely everything on your need to feel secure, protected, and in control. Fortunately for the counselor, the man was shocked rather than angered. I'd never thought of it like that, he said, and things began to change in the marriage. Do you ever think that people who use money differently than you are just completely in the dark? They don't get it. They're so stupid. Why do they use money that way? I can't believe how how non-Christian they're acting. All the while, you might have the same surface idol, just driven by a different one. And in that way, you might also be in the darkness. A resident who can't see sees that pretty clearly. How about for you? Does that make sense at all, or does that not relate to you at all? Because if it makes sense, that's one kind of darkness. But here's another one. What was getting the people of Zebulun and Naphtali in trouble is that that they were darkened to what life's all about. Life is all about living under Him and His kingdom. Life is about living that fullness to, to love and be loved, to be fully known and fully loved by God so that I might fully know and fully love those who are around me, living the ill, right? Trusting what God's done for me and loving my neighbor. And yet for the people of Israel, who Moses said beforehand, when you go, okay, Blessings for acting this way, curses for acting this way. Blessings for following God, living under Him in His kingdom, delighting in Him, making much of Him, and loving and serving those around you. Be a light to the Gentiles. Curses if you turn away from God. You begin to mistreat one another. and You live only unto yourselves. How did the people of Israel do? They lived in darkness. They were quite adept at it. Here's my question for you. How are you at living in the light? Do you find it easy to go through life and look into all these other gods to save and protect and provide for you? I want to be like you one day when I grow up, Milton. How easy is it for us To run after these other gods, like Ahaz. I want to give you three C words, what we can look to for light. One is culture, one is circumstances, and one is Christ. Culture, circumstances, Christ. The culture we're reminded of in Isaiah 8. So right before our Isaiah 9 passage that we heard from today, we have this Isaiah 8 passage. And in this passage, it says this. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instructions and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to the word, to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God." Then they will look to the earth and see only distress and darkness with fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Quick question for you. Do you know anybody that they don't really have much time for God except for when bad things happen and they have to have someone to blame so they blame Him? Is that true? Do you experience that with the people around you? Absolutely, right? And so the culture says, hey, can... In their day, consult the mediums and the spiritists. Just drive up to slaughter, turn left, and right there in the first left you can take. There's someone you can consult. a little spot right there you can go and see somebody if you want to just get your palm read and do different things. Okay, or just consult. You know, pull up the horoscope, look at astrology. There's all these other things that you can do that will replace what God says. So the question is, do you go to God? Now, you might be looking at me today saying, move on, Pastor. Come on, I'm sitting in church. (laughs) Okay? But I've told you this over and over again, right? Like when I was a teenager, I would go to church to look at Paula Vogel, right? I wanted to see her. Is it possible for us to be sitting in church today thinking about any number of other things? Is it possible for us to even attend church on Sunday and break the third commandment? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Is it possible that we come here not to hear God's word and not to desire to let it impact our lives so that he might lead us where we need to go, so that we might live well under him and his kingdom, but we come here to see somebody? to get something done, to do a business transaction, to, to make ourselves look good. Why are you here? And do you know that it's even possible to be here or to be part of a community and still be in the darkness? Does that make sense? Is that possible? It's just culturally acceptable. I mean, we live in the South. We're in Texas, right? What do, you do? what do you do on Sunday morning in Texas? Go to church. So it's just cultural, right? Or circumstantial. Ahaz, Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, he's dealing with this horrible situation going on in front of him. These two kings from the north are going to attack him, so he doesn't know what to do. So instead of crying out to his God that Isaiah says, call out to God, Ahaz says, no, I won't test the Lord that way. I'll just rely instead on the Assyrians. That's not such a good idea because they would come in eventually and take over the land. And they were the ones who were oppressing them. That yoke of oppression was over them because of his bad choice. Hezekiah, he was one that was being attacked by the king of Assyria. And instead of turning it over to the king and saying, well, just come on in then because we can't do anything or trying to fight against him, he called on the Lord. That was part of living in the light, turning to God, living in the light and saying, God, you have to be the one that protects us. And he said a prayer to God and God provided. And remember, that's one of my favorite stories of the Old Testament, where as he trusted in God and God alone, God sent the angel of the Lord, which is probably the pre-incarnate Christ, and he slew 185,000 of the Assyrian enemy. And they went home. And God said even beforehand, oh, and by the way, when that leader goes home, that leader's own two sons will kill him. You have nothing to worry about. And you might be looking at me today and say, well, Pastor, it's really easy to talk about that here on Sunday morning. But it's really hard to trust God throughout the week. Would you say that? few of you are like, yeah, that makes sense. It's really hard. So here's the first little comment I have for you. Do you know what it says in Psalm 119, verse 105? Every hand shoots up. Yes, pastor, I know what that verse says. (laughs) Thy word is a... You do know it. (laughs) Thy word is a Lamp. lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And so when we say, you know, it's, just, it's easy to say here, Pastor, but it's really hard to live over there. My question is, how often have you turned to that word to let it lead you? How often have you sought someone out to talk with you about these things to say, what is the truth of God in this situation? In other words, how many times do I get into trouble and I just go to my same old coping mechanisms and how many times do I actually turn to the Lord? Because it's really hard to find the help in the Lord if I never turn to Him. Have you found that to be the case? Have you found that to be the case where you just turn to all these other things and then say, well, God, I just, I can't really trust you. Yeah, because I've never actually repented and followed him to the source of hope, which is his word. Am I being mean-spirited today? What I want you to do is to say, you know what, it's difficult, but... It's worth doing. Will I turn to Jesus this time? We all have our places we like to go, right? Israel was really comfortable with just turning to all the other gods, just living according to the gods of the nations that were there before him. Just do what's comfortable, what's easy, because no one's going to push back. And our circumstances are really hard, so... And trusting a God that we can't see is difficult, isn't it? So I'll just do what's comfortable what fits my circumstances. But that's not what Gideon did. You see, it says, as in the days of Midian, if you look at Isaiah 9, 4, it talks about the days of Gideon, or Midian, I'm sorry, Midian. Midian is the army that came against Gideon. There were probably 135,000 or more troops that came against him. And as they came against him, how many troops would you like to have if 135,000 men with camels and everything else are coming at you? Stan, how many men would you like to have? At least double. At least double. That makes sense, doesn't it? That makes sense. I want at least 270,000, okay? Because they're coming and they have camels and they're well-armed and they're going to come and they've been destroying us for a long time. I want at least double. And so God says, well, take these men, okay? And there's 32,000 of them. And the first thing that God says is, tell them that if they're scared, they can go home. (laughs) So out of the 32,000, guess how many left? 22,000 pastor fix ran away. I played paintball one time, and I had a bullet bounce up and hit me. I thought, that's not any fun. I stopped playing the game. Okay? 22,000 pastors ran away. That left, how many left? 10,000 facing an army. That's 135,000. Way too many, right? They had camels. These guys had none. And then God says, what? What? Still too many. Go over in the water and I'll show you which ones I want. By the time God was done, how many men were there? 300. You guys know the story. Three hundred. Because wow. God says what? I don't, want, I don't want you to boast about you're the one who brought this great deliverance. <laughs> What's God doing in your life when you feel like you're in the midst of the darkness? <clears throat> And you just can't trust God because life is just so difficult. I wonder if maybe in these situations God is getting everything pared down so that you have no reason to boast in yourself but only in Jesus. Is that possible? Will we boast in God when we don't understand, when it seems too tough, when the enemy seems too big and we just can't do it? Will I still cling to the God who is for me? Of course, we know what happened. The Midianites were defeated. All they had to do was get their little torches, smash the jars, and they all just fought against each other, and it was over. Amazing. Into the darkness that we live in, in the darkness of our comparing ourselves to others and judging them in the darkness that we have in our own deep idolatry, in the darkness that we have as we turn away from God to trust all these other things, our culture, our circumstances, all these other things, rather than trusting in God, a light has come. In the, in the valley of darkness, a light has come. And of course, that's pointing us to who? Jesus. Jesus. And as I was thinking about this today, when you think of the valley of darkness, we might think of Psalm 23. How does that go again? The day though I walk through the valley of, death. of death. If you think about darkness, that makes darkness of death, right? Those of you who have lost loved ones. Losing a loved one is that darkness? It's just really hard. I have a young lady that I know from a different place and I just talked to one of her friends recently and she said she's doing so much better now but death just really throws her for a loop. And so I'm reminded of a story I heard recently and this story is about some POWs that were in, I think it was a Japanese POW camp. And they went out and they went to work. And as they came back, they were working, digging, and doing different things and so they counted the shovels. And as they counted the shovels, they were one short. And so the Japanese prison guard, they just yelled and screamed at those prisoners and they said, Someone must confess for doing this crime. Someone has to confess or we will shoot all of you. And so they pulled up their rifles and they were pointing them. One man stepped forward. I did it. The soldiers beat. Him to death. Everyone else was set free. Went back to the camp. Not set free, but went back to the camp. When they went back to the camp, they recounted the shovels and they were all there. The one who brought light into our darkness and the fear of our death, the one who was beaten to death for us, is named... Jesus, so that as we live in this broken world that we live in, as we live in the dark world that we live in, we have the light of life given to us, and the privilege of joining with Him to share that with those around us, we are given life, for someone died innocently. So we might live, not unto ourselves, but unto Him who says, repent, turn from your way, come Follow me. You see, we have great joy today because God has provided light for our darkness. Amen?